When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. funny story. There was a lactation consultant in the room and she looked at me sort of curiously while I was, while I was nursing and she said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I thought, well, that's kind of rude. Um, and, and I think I made some joke about, um, my Irish ancestry and how, when we drink too much, our eyes are droopy. Um, and she said, no, it's not that go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror and in fact, the side of the face had completely fallen down. Um, and then a neurologist was called, I called my husband who's a doctor and he said, have the neurologist come. The neurologist uh, was worried about a stroke uh, and it turned out it was Bell's palsy. That's playwright Sarah Rule talking about the moment she lost her smile. At a time of joy in her life with the opening of her new play on Broadway and the birth of twins, her face fell down. Bell's palsy robbed her of the ability not only to smile, but also to fully express herself. She's written a wonderful book about that experience called Smile, the Story of a Face. And there's a good chance that our conversation about it will make you smile. I'm really eager to talk with you, Sarah, because of all the stories in your plays, this one from your life that's in your book ranks right up with there with some of the most fascinating moments and you were so kind to write so beautifully about this it came at a crucial moment in your life didn't it your your wonderful play in the next room or the vibrator play was just opening on broadway right is that your first play on broadway that's right first and and only so far and thank you for saying that i i am such an admirer of yours and it just tickles me that you even know of my plays so thank you <laughs> Thank you. I haven't seen in in the next room. I've only read it and admired it tremendously. I could see it playing in my head. Oh well, thank you. I uh, I was just talking to a composer about making it into an opera. We thought all the orgasms would sound really good sung. The orgasms would be sung. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I thought they always were. <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs> so your beautiful play 
opens on Broadway, mm-hmm. and in a, an extra burst of creativity, you're pregnant with twins. Right. So what happened next? Right. So the twins came as something of a, a surprise, an abundant welcome surprise. I already had an older daughter. And then I went on bed rest, which seemed kind of wonderfully Victorian, given that the the play on Broadway was about 19th century hysteria. And then uh, I got a condition called cholestasis of the liver, which can be quite scary for the for the fetuses um, because bile is leaking into your bloodstream and it can kill the babies. So I delivered kind of on a razor's edge at 36 weeks. The babies were miraculously healthy. And then I got a condition called Bell's palsy, where this side of my face, um, or for the for the listener, the left side of my face was paralyzed. And for most Bell's palsy sufferers, it goes away pretty quickly um, with no intervention. And I just happened to be on a very, very slow boat. So the book is in some ways an examination of what it is to have your body betray you and also a meditation on um, art and motherhood and life. How did you first know you had Bell's palsy? Was it looking in a mirror, or how did you know? Well, it was sort of a funny story. There was a lactation consultant in the room, and she was teaching me how to do something called the football hold, where you hold, you know, two babies like this under your arm, like footballs. I didn't know that. You nurse two at the same time? Yeah, you can. I mean, (laughs) I'm not very athletic, so the football hold sort of eluded me. But she looked at me sort of curiously while while I was nursing, and she said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I thought, well, that's kind of rude. Um, and, and I think I made some joke about um, my Irish ancestry and how when we drink too much, our eyes are droopy. Um, and she said, no, it's not that. Go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror, and in fact, the side of the face had completely fallen down. Um, and then a neurologist was called. I called my husband, who's a doctor, and he said, have the neurologist come. The neurologist uh, was worried about a stroke. Uh And it turned out it was Bell's palsy. What causes Bell's palsy? Does anybody know? It's one of those tricky idiopathic diseases where they don't quite know. Bell's palsy also can be genetic. And interestingly, my mom has had it and I've had an uncle who's had it. But they do think there's something about the mechanism of pregnancy, something to do with inflammation uh, that, that could cause it. So it must have been scary to know that your face wasn't expressing what you felt, especially when you looked at your newborn babies. It was really a nightmare. And I mean, you understand it completely as an actor, the idea that your face isn't expressing what you want it to. And for the babies, I just wanted so much for them to know I was communicating love and joy to them. And in some ways, mothers teach children how to smile. You know, you're teaching babies mm. facial expressions while you hold them. So for all of the kind of petty vanity I might have felt, I think it was really that was the hardest thing for me was not being able to smile at the babies. You, you couldn't smile. And there, there was something about your eyebrows, too. I, I didn't realize the eyebrows communicate so much. Eyebrows are incredible, you know, raising them, um, furrowing them, tell so many stories. And also 
there's a kind of smile that they call the Duchenne smile, which is the spontaneous smile where if you go like this, you know, and your, your eyes crinkle in response, it means you're spontaneously smiling. And so people seem apparently untrustworthy if they smile with their mouth, but not their eyes. And my husband, because he's a child psychiatrist, he had described to me the phenomenon of something called still face, where psychiatrists did an experiment where they take mothers and their children and say, smile um, at your babies and engage with your babies. Now don't smile, just give them completely cold affect and, and a completely still face. And the babies would freak out. And so it was a study to determine what effect postpartum depression had on babies. And it's kind mm. of a cruel study, but I'd remembered it and I thought, oh God, am I looking at the babies with still face? And my husband said, no, no, they can read your intention. But it was something that sort of haunted me. I can understand that. In fact, I can maybe compare notes with you because I don't know if you know that I have Parkinson's. I didn't and, know that. Well, one of the symptoms is what they call the Parkinson's mask, mm. where your face can become pretty immobilized mm -hmm. and not show any emotion or not much. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think I, I some from time to time have a light dose of that. Mm -hmm. But we're talking to each other via computer right now, and we are both interested in seeing the face of the other person. And when I do this, I find myself checking my, my own picture once in a while to make sure that my my face looks interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I keep trying to look at your eyes and somehow the computer won't let me do it or I don't appear to be looking at your eyes. So I, I'm trying to look at a little green dot so that I look as if I'm looking in your eyes. But these are the things that plague us in our cultural moment. Yeah, well, I go to the trouble of putting a separate camera right up next to where your eyes are. Oh. So I, I probably appear to be looking at you because yeah. I am. Yeah. And the, but the idea that I have to make an effort to signal my moods mm -hmm. feels artificial. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel like communication. It feels like an excommunication. Oh, God, yeah. So do you, do you go through that too? Do you have this feeling of I have to signal somehow with my hands or my, mm -hmm. my, my, my posture that I'm really in there with the other person. Yeah. And particularly in the acute phase, I would murmur more, you know, I would sort of um, make listening noises more. And when I saw someone from a distance to show that I recognize them, I would give a little wave because I couldn't smile at them. Do you mind my asking how long since your diagnosis? Almost six years. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these neurological situations have things in common. And I think one thing they have in common is that when one ability or, or sensory strength leaves you, you start to depend on other ones. So maybe mm. I started to depend on gesturing or murmuring. Um, and I think about that human resilience, you know, in terms of yeah. how we do long to connect and during the pandemic, Maybe we're masked or maybe we're on Zoom, but still we're trying to use other senses to show that we're trying so hard to connect. You, you mentioned that your mother had Bell's palsy. And as I remember, that was while she was an actress, right? Yeah, that's right. And she's still going, you know, she's in her 70s and she's still acting. But I remember 
She was at an opening of mine right after I had Bell's Palsy, and this was a play called Passion Play at a church in Brooklyn. And she was sitting on the side of me, and she kept looking over nervously. And I thought, why does she keep looking over at me? And she finally whispered, are you not pleased? And I said, I'm pleased, I'm pleased. I just can't move my face, you know? So even my own mother had trouble divining my intentions. But there was that wonderful story about your daughter, Anna, who gave you a completely different perspective. It was after I had written the book and I was talking to my editor in the car and Anna could hear on speakerphone what we were saying. And afterwards I said, oh, Anna, that must have been interesting. You're talking about Bell's palsy and depression and this and that. And she said, it was interesting. And I said, well, how did you view all of this? And she said... I guess I saw it as your face was this beautiful house and one day a wall came crumbling down and you spend all this time trying to rebuild the wall brick by brick, trying to rebuild it and you couldn't quite. And then she said, but when I look at your face, all I see is my home. (laughs) Hmm. That that, to switch from house to home is a killer. Right. (laughs) That must have really (laughs) must have affected you deeply to hear that. Well, it did. I thought, if I'd known that, would I, maybe I wouldn't have needed to write this book. You know, it was being loved unconditionally by your children. I suppose we don't all get that, but it's also something we don't think about much. We think about the love we're feeling unconditionally for our children. Mm. But then sometimes you get that complete acceptance coming back at you. It's very moving. What were some of the things you tried, some of the things you were advised to do? Did they work? Were they only partially effective? What was going on there? The thing is, I would have tried anything, and eventually I did. But at the beginning, my neurologist basically told me that nothing I did would help. And because I'm trained to believe medical advice, I thought, well, okay. He said, acupuncture won't help, physical therapy won't help, rest won't help, nothing will help. All you can do is get experimental neurosurgery. And that was when I'd been, maybe a year had passed and I still hadn't gotten better. Uh, But the words experimental and neurosurgery in the same sentence really freaked me out. So I didn't pursue Mm. it. Ultimately, physical therapy helped me a great deal. It just took me, you know, nine years to actually do it. Um, Acupuncture really helped me. Um, But I think there was something about that neurologist telling me that nothing would help, that only a kind of um, swashbuckling surgeon could save me. I think it also messed with my sense of power or agency in my own illness, the idea that nothing I could do would help. But I kind of, it's funny, I've stopped talking about him because I went to a book reading where Mary Louise Parker was delighted by that story. So she said, tell about the awful neurologist. And I did. And then I could swear that I saw him in the second row. And then, of course, (laughs) it wasn't him, but I was convinced. (laughs) Looking at you on the computer screen, you've made tremendous progress because I've seen pictures taken at the onset of this problem. Yeah. And now you look symptom-free to me. Oh, that's so nice. I I have so much more mobility. I mean, I, I think I will always have asymmetry. But I can do things with my face, you know, which I couldn't do before. And I had this wonderful physical therapist who herself had had Bell's palsy. And rather than having me look in the mirror, she would look at me and she would say grimace, you know, and I try to go like that. 
or um, raise your eyebrows. And, and, and I was doing it with her and I felt like my mirror neurons were firing. And, um, and sometimes I would watch actors on movies in movies with the, in the dark and I would imitate their expressions. And That's interesting. You, and you, you wouldn't check yourself in a mirror. You would just try to make your face like theirs. Huh? Yeah. Were, were, you working, were you working from the outside or working from the inside? <laughs> from the outside. In other words, Definitely. just push your face into a similar configuration. Mm-hmm. Not, not uh, this guy is happy, I'm going to be happy inside and see what it does to my face. You were, and just pushing your muscles around. Pushing my muscles around. And it's interesting your question about from the inside or outside because it's such an actor, a thing actors know about and the general population doesn't. But it's something I thought about a lot because here I could feel, I thought I could feel joy. And yet when I couldn't manifest it on my face, it felt a little dampened, you know? So mm. it gave me some sympathy for the outside in approach. Uh, I definitely liked, I remember going seeing Guys and Dolls at um, Film Forum with my friend who's a playwright and um, Marlon Brando has wonderful eyebrows in that, you know, he's always, (laughs) so I was (laughs) trying to um, imitate his eyebrows and uh, action movies are good for certain kinds of grimacing. And I started to develop more movement, you know, such that my phone stopped recognizing me. I knew I'd made progress when my phone couldn't recognize me. That's an amazing moment that really stuck out in your story, (laughs) that facial recognition on the iPhone Mm -hmm. is so particular that it thought you were a different person. Yeah. Amazing. And it happened maybe three times or so in the course of, you know, my getting better. And then it just happened again last week, weirdly. So who knows? I mean, there's no objective measure of you know, Bell's palsy improvement and my physical therapist will test my muscles and sort of say, oh, you're, you're about, you're probably at about 70%. Um, and I'll take it. Yeah. What about babies? Do you, <laughs> do you see a difference in the response you get from babies when you try to connect with them? Well, here's the thing. I never, I didn't try for a while. I mean, I think I, there were a lot of ways I was hiding and turtling down and not trying to make connections because I found it awkward with strangers. So I remember mm-hmm. when I first felt I could smile spontaneously and kind of show it on my face, I would smile at babies like a crazy lunatic lady. <laughs> I got so much pleasure out of it. You know, so women would be clutching at their babies, worried that I was going to kidnap them, so I'd be ogling them. When we come back from our break, Sarah Rule tells me about the challenges and rewards of writing a book about her experience and how a friend tips her off to the best mantra for feeling better about yourself that I've ever heard. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. 
For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sarah Rule. How long did it take you to face the idea of writing a book? Was it a hard decision? It was a hard decision. I had written a couple small essays about it, but and I'd taken notes about it, but I avoided really going full throttle into it. And I think partly, you know, I kept just wanting to get better and wanted to, to not yeah. think about it. So there was denial. There was also a sense of disembodiment of, well, if I could just not think about my body and just think about my mind and my stories, this will sort itself out. And maybe there was a sense that as a writer, it was um, undignified to write about the body <laughs> you know, or to write about something as intimate as one's face. And I remember con- considering finally doing it. And my husband, who knows me very well, said, you, you think about this all the time. You've suffered about it. Usually you write about things you suffer about or think about. Why are you not writing about this? And I thought, all right, I'll, I'll try. And as soon as I sat down and tried, it poured out of me pretty quickly. The remarkable thing is from the very first paragraph, it's told with such a light touch. The surprises you get, the, the pain you go through, it's not painful to read. Good. It arouses emotion, mm-hmm. but it's not like it's not like eating your broccoli. <laughs> good, good, good. I'm so glad. It really draws you in, in in the most personal way. Did you feel that there was an element of wanting to demystify it, destigmatize it? Was there any of that in your decision? Yes, and I wanted to make other people feel seen, other people who might have gone through it or were going through similar things. I think our culture is so airbrushed and so about symmetry. And I felt, particularly for other women who might be going something similar, I felt the need to kind of reach out and wrap my mind wrap my mind and my arms around them. Hmm. And for myself, I think, I don't know, did you know this playwright, Chuck Me? Yes, he, I've done one of his plays. It's, you he's did? A wonderful, what did you yeah. do together? L- Limonade tous les jours. Oh, my God, I love it. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful play. Yeah. Well, during the pandemic, I was reading his memoir called A Nearly Normal Life about his experience with polio as a child. And he talks about the need to make aesthetic sense of an illness at some point to, to create a sense of wholeness because illness creates this kind of fissure, you know, a before and an after. 
And I really felt like the process of the of writing the book selfishly for me, and I didn't know it at the time, but gave me that sense of aesthetic wholeness that I was lacking. You begin the book with a quote by Virginia Woolf, which is so insightful. I'd have to leave it to you to quote it exactly, but the idea that illness happens all the time, it's a part of our lives, and there's so much to be learned from an examination of it. It's a wonder that it isn't a staple of the mm. the writer's uh, professional life, like battle or love. Mm-hmm. Illness is kind of left out. Why do you suppose that is? Well, correct me if I have her quote wrong. You have it beautifully. She talks about it as a kind of undiscovered country of literature and I think the reason it's left out is that it resists plot and it the chronic resists arc. And yet so many of our most vexing and interesting experiences defy a neat Aristotelian arc. And I think that also gave me pause when I was thinking about writing it. I sort of thought, well, what kind of story is that? There's a woman who's slowly, slowly getting better, but not quite. Um, the Aristotelian notion of dramatic action where the the hero or heroine is trying to accomplish something of great value and obstacles are thrown in the path mm-hmm. and cutting the way through the tangle of obstacles, either getting there or not getting there. It always mm-hmm. seems to me if the, if the hero gets there, it's a comedy. If they don't get there, it's a tragedy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But That's right. Yeah. Your book, your book is full of that. You're you're constantly trying to do something about it, mm-hmm. and and you come part way. It looks like you're you're in sight, and then it it fades away a little bit, and you have another go at it. When I read anything, I'm always looking for Aristotle, <laughs> and I thought I saw it all over the place mm. in your book. Ah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I also guess I think about storylines like Pilgrim's Progress, you know, where you take a little pilgrim who's on a search and you watch them wander around trying to overcome things like sloth and despair. And I think I I love the genre of spiritual autobiography. I don't know why. It just compels me. I read it over and over again. And watching someone with a search that's deeply interior is really moving to me. And I think one thing that's interesting too is as a playwright, I'm really interested in stories that are deeply interior, but it's harder on the stage because it's such an um, externalized medium. How do you do it on the stage? How do, if you want to do that, how do you go about it? It's a mystery. I mean, partly you can get that intimacy through soliloquy and through metaphor and through attending to quieter moments, you know, instead of putting all the emphasis on plot. But now that I've written the book, I kind of think, well, I guess you could do this as a very long monologue on the stage, but I, I wouldn't have known how to write it as a play if I'd sat down Would to write ma- it. You know, that hadn't occurred to me. It would make a really fascinating one-person play. Uh, yeah, I wonder. I think it maybe could be done. Well, I'll be watching for it. <laughs> You can play me any day. (laughs) (laughs) 
I heard you say some, something about the last chapter of the book, that it was hard for you to write. Mm. Why, why was the last chapter hard? What did, it, what did it have to contain that you didn't feel you wanted to get into, or what was the problem? I think there was a kind of nakedness, a kind of lessons learned and transparency that I was trying to dig for and make accessible for the reader. And I remember yeah. the actress Jessica Heck. Do you know Jessica? Wonderful actress. And oh, Jessica Heck. Of course I know her. Yeah, I, I forgot her name for a minute. Yeah, she's a wonderful actress and a terrific person. Exactly. She's sort of angelic and... She has a little house in Williamstown, and I was there working on a play. And she said, come stay at my house and write and do what you need to do. And so I was working on that last chapter at Jessica's house, and I remember just flinging myself <laughs> on her bed and just crying as I was finishing it. You know, it, it was um, it was hard won, uh, that, last, that last bit, but I'm glad I, I got through it. Can you put in a sentence or two what you think one of the things that you learned? I think I learned that what muscles do is so much more important than how they look. Huh. So when I was doing physical therapy, you know, trying to regain function and strength in my muscles was more important than how I looked. And the intention to convey emotion is just as important as the vehicle, you know, that um, our attempt to reach across is so profound, even if our vehicles are imperfect. You know, I felt I had an imperfect vehicle and I felt stymied by that for a long time instead of accepting the imperfection and maybe maybe that that there was great wisdom in the imperfection somehow. I also read that you had a therapist who advised Mm. when you were in a low state to think of what you were grateful for. Yeah. Have you been able to do that? Has it helped? It's helped so much, and it was a wonderful exercise. It it actually, funnily enough, was a neurologist friend, and I had called her and said, Julie, what do you say to patients where there's a really difficult diagnosis or it affects their identity in some way? And she said... um, Sometimes I have them make a list of something they're grateful for, but not your sort of usual Thanksgiving table by rote list where you kind of all say, I'm grateful for my friends and family, which of course I am. But she yeah, well, said, at Thanksgiving, you have to be grateful for everybody at the table. It can get to <laughs> exactly. It's a long leave. list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even crazy Uncle Bill. <laughs> oh, I have an Uncle Bill. Oh. Everyone has an Uncle Bill. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> No, that's okay. Hi, Uncle Bill. So, so what, what's what's more subtle version of gratefulness do you practice? Right. So Julie said, imagine everything on this list, if you don't write it down by midnight, will disappear. So then suddenly you go, oh my God, I'm grateful for my teeth. I'm grateful for my hair. I'm grateful for my heart beating. I'm grateful for my husband's heart beating. Oh my God, now I have to be grateful for all my children's hearts. I have to be grateful for all their limbs. I need to be grateful for my dog. I need to be grateful for um, the fact that my ceiling's not leaking, the fact that I have hot water. I mean, all of the things that would really irritate you if you lost them. I'm grateful for my big toe. You know, you can just keep going and going. (laughs) 
So what about now post-Bells, post the worst of Bells? What do you, have you, has it opened your eyes to something new to write about? In, in addition to writing the monologue for me where I play you. <laughs> um, I am not quite sure what I'm going to write next, but I have this opera on right now, um, Eurydice up at the Met which has been very occupying. And I got to um, take a bow, which is something writers never get to do. You know, actors do all of that embodied stuff. And I felt bowing at Eurydice that I really wasn't hiding anymore. You know, that Mm. I really wasn't retreating or observing. There was a real sense of exuberance and connection and sort of willing and willingness to be on stage, even though it was for a moment. So right now I'm enjoying that, um, that little nugget of joy, and then I'll see what to write next. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I've really, I've really enjoyed it on many levels. One, to be grateful to you, to you and express to you my gratitude mm-hmm. for your wonderful book and what you contributed in writing that book. But even though we have to go in a minute, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Mm. They're roughly, roughly having something to do with communicating. Mm-hmm. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Um, God. That's a tall order. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, hmm. gently after a shot of gin. I don't know. I'm thinking about family dynamics. <laughs> after a shot like. of gin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um. The strange. It was a sweet question. It, I was at a. I was at a school, and a little third grader asked me if I felt like cereal was really in the same category as soup because they were both in bowls. <laughs> and I was very adamant because I love soup. I was like, "No, they're not the same. Don't be fooled." I love a. How old was this kid? I think second grade or something. I love that asking about categories. <laughs> Going to grow up to be a a scientist, philosopher. Yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh, ooh! I need an answer to that question. I mean, I'll tell you a secret about myself. Yeah. What? Go ahead. Oh, good. Sometimes if I'm with a compulsive talker, it doesn't actually stop them talking, but it calms me down. I put my hand in my pocket and make a little mouth in my pocket and just go. I can, see, I can't do this visually for the um, listener. I make my little hand move like a compulsively talking mouth, but I do it in my pocket and it calms me down. <laughs> so you but do lip, lip syncing in your pocket. Yeah, that's what I do. That's my strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try that. That sounds good. Now, I'm so curious about the other answers. I'm going to listen to all of your your people so I can get some wisdom. Here's another one. You're at a dinner table. 
sitting next to someone you never met. Mm-hmm. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? Oh, as an introvert, this one really stymies me. Oh, how do you? <laughs> I asked you first. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> you don't ask about their job. Everyone's always asking people about their jobs, and I think that doesn't start a genuine conversation. I'll tell you two subjects that are really taboo. Um Prayer and masturbation. If you want to, so which really... one do you ask about? <laughs> like, if you ask someone, "Do you pray?" It's as taboo as asking, "Like, do you masturbate?" You'll get a very, you know, either way, the people will feel intruded upon. But I will say, you know, I've gotten into interesting cocktail party conversations with various plays. Like with the vibrator play, I was you know, studying the female orgasm. And sometimes I was like studying all kinds of orgasms. And so that would be my cocktail party conversation. And um, I definitely found you could go deep with, with some of those questions. And I, when I wrote a play called How to Transcend a Happy Marriage, it was about polyamory and also slaughtering your own meat. And I found that in a New York dinner party, every person seemed to have a story about one or the other. Like they might not have a polyamory story, but then they had a meat slaughtering story and they often didn't have both, but I could usually elicit either a meat slaughtering story or something about polyamory. So what I draw from that is you, you look for something way (laughs) off at another angle. That's not conventional. Yeah. Something far afield that, I'm interested in, for some aesthetic purpose, I suppose, that might might be disarming to my conversation partner. Okay, last question. (laughs) What book changed your life? Hmm. My first thought, I might as well go with my first thought, was Letters, Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. What was there about it? It was about how to be a poet in the world and how to how to be in love, how to love someone with boundaries and compassion and also be an artist. I think a companion book, which is a contemporary book that I love recommending is The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Do you know this book? No, I don't think I do. You would love it. It's it's about how to be an artist in a kind of capitalist commercial economy in a way. He's a poet and he talks about poets and then he talks about anthropology and um, different systems of gift giving. The idea that a gift doesn't have to be reciprocal in many cultures. You give it and then it's passed on and on and on and on. And he Mm. says, this is actually the economy that artists are in, though they don't know it. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they feel uncomfortable because their gift giving economy isn't being recognized for what it is. And that really changed my relationship to the theater and how I felt about the theater. And when I teach it um, at Yale, I, I often will have my students read it first and then write a gift play for each other just to remind themselves that we aren't in this alone and that we are actually trying to make gifts for each other. That's great. Thank you. Not to put too neat a button on it. You've given us a great gift today, and you do all your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. 
My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Sarah Rule has written a dozen plays, including In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, which was a Tony Award nominee for Best New Play in 2010. She recently adapted her play Eurydice as the libretto for an opera that played earlier this season at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. She's also written four books. Her most recent book, Smile, the Story of a Face, was named one of the best 100 books for 2021 by Time magazine. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with astronaut Chris Hadfield. In his time as commander of the International Space Station, he developed an international following by demonstrating on social media the many oddities of being weightless. His best known was literally space oddity. His performance of David Bowie's song accompanying himself on the space station's guitar it's just so weird and different without gravity, with not pushing the fluid out of your head. It's hard to sing, it's hard to play, but it did hit a silver lining. Because my sinuses were always congested, because there's no gravity to pull it down, it was a little easier to hit the high notes, I, I found, which for covering Bowie, you know, if you think about Space Oddity, um, it, it actually worked to my advantage a little bit to not have a deeper register. Chris Hadfield. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.